Hey everyone, you're listening to the Simple Electronics Podcast, and I'm your host, Dan, from the Simple Electronics YouTube channel. And with me today, I've got someone really special. We've got Marius from the Contrary IO YouTube channel. How are you, Marius? I'm good, I'm good. <laughs> uh, however, <laughs> however, <laughs> I have my own YouTube channel now, and Contrary IO was my former startup. <laughs> Well, I got it from your Discord profile, so that was my mistake there. Yeah, that's fine. What is what is your YouTube channel? So, um, so everyone knows. It, it, mind you, the listeners will have access to it in the show notes and on the background. Yeah, it's just like my name, which is Marius Hire, and it's probably best to just check the link because it's kind of hard to get through, like to get to English <laughs> in a yeah, proper it, way. It's H uh, E I E R, correct? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, so so I have Marius with me today. Uh, can you explain to everyone a little bit uh, who you are and uh, what you do then so we get a good sense of you? Yes, sure. So right now, for most people and probably also your listeners, I'm just uh, someone on the internet that you probably haven't heard about yet. <laughs> but uh, if I would just like to brand myself with some sort of title, it would be someone who works in public, uh, so I do works within electronics, within machine design, stuff like this. And I publish my work on uh, Twitch, Twitter, YouTube, Instagram. And I've also tried TikTok, but it's fairly new to the game. Started to do that in January, something around that. And uh, I'm currently not so big. Uh, but uh, just trying to get there. Well, I mean, so, on YouTube, you have 418 subscribers, and it wasn't all that long ago when, when I was at that um, at that, that pace. But um, like I said on many podcasts, on YouTube, you don't get what you deserve, you get what you get. So hopefully we can drive some audience your way from this podcast. Yeah, that would be nice, definitely. So let's start from the very beginning then. Um, First of all, uh, where are you from and what kind of qualifications do you have to do sort of electronic stuff? Yeah, good question. Uh, well, I am from Norway, which is in Scandinavia. And uh, well, I the think happiest it's... places in the world, I think. <laughs> yeah, assumingly. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I think like the Scandinavian countries usually get, get this brand and we have this kind of uh, how should I say, uh, being, being an example of a society that is very well functioning and working, uh, usually, uh, especially, you know, on, on the left side of the, in American politics. Uh, but you know, everything is not, uh, how should I say gold here as well. We well, also have, have, have our issues, but in general, people are usually not in that much trouble over here. Do you, let, let me just let me just ask you a question. If you go outside at night, what are the odds you're going to see the northern lights? Well, um, it's actually I would say it's pretty low. Um, if you travel way up north, which is so the northern part of Norway is as far away from me as it is from Oslo or where I am now to Ukraine. Oh, so it's okay. like a, a pretty, pretty long, pretty long country. 
And uh, we border also with Russia, by the way, at, in the north. Yeah, I and, can see um, that. Yeah, and we you had northern like, lights. You guys are like hanging on Sweden's back there. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We were in union with Sweden until 1905. So, so uh, we kind of been we've been uh, owned by both Sweden and Denmark for some time. Uh, so our language is influenced both by by that. Our, our original language is what you speak in uh, Iceland, actually. So that's how they originally spoke in Norway, and then we had our um, connection or we belong to Sweden and Denmark and that influenced the Norwegian language and we have what we have today which is some kind of hybrid between uh, Icelandic, Swedish and Danish actually. Very interesting stuff. Is, yes it is. <laughs> is Norway the the, I'm, I'm sorry, you'll have to correct me here because, uh, you know, I live across the ocean, but is Norway the, the country with all the oil riches that the, all the citizens take part in? Or is that yeah. Finland? No, no. It, uh, yeah, it's Norway. Okay. So we have uh, most of our wealth from oil. And we have uh, one of the absolute biggest funds in the world, which is the, we usually, we used to call it the, Norwegian oil fund, but I think it's kind of has been rebranded as something more, uh, how should I say, uh, in time. <laughs> so we kind of lost or, the oil, yeah, but it, but, it's, but it but it is oil money, and uh, we own, or like the Norwegian government owns a lot of uh, the biggest companies in the world through that fund. Actually, interesting. Uh, I'm sorry for detracting you there. So, so you were saying you're in Norway and uh, yeah, we were yeah. talking about your qualifications. I, I get really excited because I don't get to travel a lot and especially in these last two years. Um, so yeah, I, whenever I, I have someone from other countries, it just interests the hell out of me. Yeah, yeah, of course, of course. Like it's probably pretty similar climate-wise to Canada because I think it's on the same like degree uh, uh, yeah i'm i'm in the so i'm in the south of canada uh and by south i mean not even the south southernmost point but here in ottawa uh specifically where i live uh in the winter it gets to minus 40 and in the summer it gets to plus 40 so we get those swings yep okay yeah okay so yeah you were talking about the qualifications and uh, i would say so my um, so my original background is uh, I actually I have actually never ever finished any formal education. Uh, so you would like someone would probably say that I wouldn't be qualified to do uh, much <laughs> just based on that. Uh, however, uh, like kind of my uh, public education has been within. Uh, uh, training for being an airplane mechanic or I think the proper term would be like an airplane engineer. Uh, and after my own heart, I, I work on, uh, I'm a licensed automotive mechanic here in Canada. Yep. Yep. Okay. Yeah. So it, it's, it's pretty much the same. It's just like, it's more expensive vehicles. <laughs> and I don't have to track down the source of the material that a bolt is made made from, you know? You guys yeah, might have yeah, to do yeah. that. 
Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we did a lot of that, and uh, it was that was it was a lot of work. <laughs> and but you know, it's it was necessary in terms of getting the aviation industry or entire transportation industry uh, to the safety levels of what it is now. Uh, oh, for sure. Yeah. So then, so, okay, so you're not yep. qualified, quote unquote, and, and I use qualified very loose for the listeners out there because you should never feel like you're underqualified to, to do anything. Like your your qualification to do things is to want to do them. So I'm not, I'm not uh, bringing Marius down here by by saying he's not qualified. It's very air quotes qualified, just to be clear. Um, but, um, but you have, so, so what made you interested in electronics then? Yeah, well, I, I was also sort of playing with your words there. Uh, and uh, uh, <clears throat> to kind of like make, make a point, I think that, uh, so if, you, if you're an expert uh, in a field, it might be hard to convey knowledge to someone which is n not an expert themselves. So like probably the best, best textbooks are not written by experts, but people who have just learned it because like the knowledge is fresh and the transition phase from knowing something to knowing something, that's kind of like the, uh, the best way of, of, of learning stuff to others as well. That's so, probably true, yeah. And that means that I'm qualified to do my YouTube channel because I know nothing. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. So, And I also think it's quite interesting to... Or it, I, it might be more attractive for people to know that you not necessarily are uh, like a deep expert in a field, but you are still able to do a lot of stuff. So I would rather be... Or usually, like used to be measured in, like what I'm able to do, with the knowledge or a little little knowledge that I have, uh, and because I think like that's easier or better for the listener or whoever consumes your content to identify with you rather than if you were like a hardcore expert. Yeah. However, uh, I have, so I'm like maybe what you call like a lifelong learner. So I, I like ever since I was a kid, I just like been reading or listening to books, trying to learn stuff all the time, trying to do many things that I probably shouldn't have done. And it has kind of taken me to a wide range of places and works and, and stuff like this. But uh, electronics has always been a very special place in my heart and because uh, when I was in 10th grade uh, I basically did I had done like 10 years of school where I basically yeah let's put it this way like I never fit well in school but uh, when we started in 10th grade um, which is which is the equivalent like high school uh, we I started on uh, like an electronics uh, school uh, because you needed to do that in order to do your uh, uh, the path to becoming like a, a airplane mechanic and uh, that was kind of the first time uh, I started to care about school and I 
basically didn't have to read much. I just have to follow up on like what the teacher said. And then I started to do electronics in my spare time. And that is basically how uh, I just like started to care more about school. Um, and I just went from someone which were like below average to someone who was like, a, I usually just like got like B's or A's uh, in electronics. And I've been like going through uh, my whole life kind of being like uh, a below average uh, student, but electronics kind of uh, made sense to me. Uh, and uh, uh, yeah, uh, my, my teacher were very, you know, not very happy for, uh, that I wanted to become like an airplane mechanic because he always thought that I should like continue within electronics. But I was uh, so set to coming into the special school which you needed to to go to if you wanted to become an uh, airplane mechanic. Uh, so, uh, yeah. Anyways, uh, I returned kind of to the interest of electronics for, let's say, maybe like eight years ago or something. So, uh, uh, which kind of also have like a special peculiar story about that as well sure let let us know but but basically uh i also want to tell everyone listening that um being a, a mechanic is not a very singular discipline and i think marius can confirm with me here at least for automotive um you need to have aspects of being an electrician of being a plumber of being an hvac technician and of being some sort of uh, engineering background there's all of those systems in in vehicles so i find auto mechanics or mechanics in general are more generalist than you know a, a trade like a plumber for example i don't know do you agree with that yeah I, I would agree with that it might be a bit different within uh aviation because you have like speciality fields but you would probably also have that also within the automotive industry as well uh, and at least now that things have changed so much with EVs and that sort of stuff. So it probably has, like, yeah, like you said, the whole the whole range. Yeah, it's very, I find, and I also find that um, the way that it used to work is that people that were not so good in school, they were pushed towards the, the trades. Um, but I will, I will tell you that um, working on cars, at least, because that's the only thing I, I can speak to, uh, is... It requires a lot more brain power than you would first assume, especially when you get into the diagnostics of, of things. So, so be careful. Uh, if you're not an academic, you can still make it. But if you're someone who doesn't like doing a lot of putting a lot of thought into their work, uh, mechanics is probably not for you. Yep. Yeah, I agree. And like the to be a problem solver is. Uh, is really important because uh, things could have a lot of different ways of, you know, being being fixed. Absolutely, or sometimes only one way, but it presents itself in several several different ways. Yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. So then, um, so then, what did attract you? What did get you started in electronics from the um, aviation mechanic field? Well, in terms of I've always been very much into making products ever since I was a kid. You know, I used to, 
I used to go buy soaps from like the store, like a, you know, a piece of soap. It's like a bar. Mm-hmm. And I used to like wrap them with like these fabric bands that I got from my mother and, uh, you know, made them look nice. And I sold them back to the same store <laughs> for like a, a profit. I think this was when I was around eight. So nice. I've, I've always uh, loved to make products and make things. And uh, with electronics, you had the ability to make things. And I remember kind of our uh, project, our final project for the year was making an amplifier. And we invested a lot of time and money into that amplifier. And it was like such a great experience because, you know, we we just like started with nothing and then we ended up with like a proper professional looking and sounding product. And that was like mind blowing. Um, And I think... And, you know, then the rest was just, like, figuring out how stuff work. And um, uh, just, you know, trying to learn more to be able to do and make more stuff. So I think that's kind of have always been uh, the drive uh, in me, actually. So I've been usually working within development of products uh, for all my life. Or I should say, like, in my professional career. Uh, I've, but I've, I have a very diverse background of jobs and, uh, I also have actually run like a tuning shop, uh, for about 80, uh, 20 years ago, probably something like that. Sorry, a tuning shop for what cars? Yeah. For cars. Nice. What kind of, what kind of stuff would you, were you doing there? Yeah, so if you so I th- I think it was like around twenty years, and it was around when Fast and the Furious came out, uh, and uh, I've turned eighteen like a couple of years ago. It was in my early twenties, and I really got into this uh, modifying cars. So especially around Japanese cars, oh, and after my own heart, here it comes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So of course I. As I do with most things, I usually take things to the extremes. So while the other kids were like trying to buy stuff from, you know, from the States or whatever, uh, I called up the Japanese factory or brand called uh, Trust, which was the kind of like the one of the biggest brands behind the Japanese tuning scene. Uh, and they kind of delivered a lot of stuff like to the Fast and Furious movie and all that stuff. And I asked to be the sole importer for their products in Scandinavia. So that's kind of where it started. Uh, and we started to import exhaust systems, intercoolers, uh, a bunch of electronics, and this kind of stuff. So um, trust is the company behind Gretty, I or yeah, vice versa. Exactly. I, I didn't know that. Interesting. Yeah, so Trust just had Gretty as their brand right, in the States. That's really interesting. Yeah, and I just started to import the stuff. Uh, I, I got to know someone who was like a car mechanic who also wanted to join. And we spent basically all his savings to buy parts, and we managed to get a really, really good air freight deal with the company. So we air freighted the stuff in and we just sold it here. 
uh, in Norway, in and to Sweden even, and you know everyone were super excited around this car tuning scene around them, and uh, so that was like a really exciting, cool thing to be doing uh, as an early twenty-year-old. I also went to <laughs> to Tokyo for something called the Tokyo Auto Salon, which was like the coolest uh, tuning expo kind of in the world and that was when i met the uh, the people behind the factory and they were like super surprised that i was so young because usually you know you were in college or something when you were that age in, in japan uh, but uh, they kind of like uh, dealt with it and because uh, you know we were buying a lot of stuff uh, and it was like really really exciting they got to see their factory uh, the owner of Trust owned a bunch of like uh, 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 racing Porsches. So like, uh, you know, these the Dower 917 Porsches from Le Mans and stuff like that. Uh, and they had obviously their factories where they kind of made everything. So it was like super, super interesting to to do. So that was a really, so that was kind of like my first, uh, yeah, we didn't call it startup back then. We just called it like a company. <laughs> yeah, uh, startup is like the new trendy words, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. That, that came a bit later. Um, but uh, we we ran that shop for, let's say, like three years or something. Okay. And uh, we had like the, our biggest problems were the costs of importing everything. Because we had to buy stuff and we, because we didn't have any credit or anything like this. So just bought a bunch of stuff, and then we basically sold it. <laughs> and the more we bought, like the more in trouble we had with liquidity. <laughs> and there were like no bank that would loan young people money, at least back then. <laughs> uh, so um, we figured out that. Uh, so we uh, we actually also like imported some uh, movies, or not movies, or video productions of you know from the cartooning scene, which actually was manufactured in or filmed in New Zealand, which was quite popular, called High Octane. Uh, and we basically pivoted the entire car tuning shop into selling and distribution uh, distribution of these car videos, which also were really fun. And we, we actually even got the entire production team from New Zealand up to Norway, and we kind of made our own uh, tuning movie with them, uh, which was super cool because uh, we got to like make you know a prof uh, like a semi-professional production, and uh, I, I think I got my name as a co-producer in like IMDb for that, <laughs> which That's kind of been like a party joke, but it was still fun. But we did lots of cool stuff. Like we 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 went to Germany to to ride on the autobahn with like a thousand horsepower Supra, Toyota Supra. Uh, we did like a top speed run on like an airstrip in Denmark with some insane cars. So it was really, really cool. And especially when you are like in your mid twenties, uh, you know, so it was, it was really, really, a, a fun time. I have to tell you though, you're making me, I'm, I'm 34. You're making me feel very unaccomplished now. <laughs> and we haven't even passed your 20s yet yeah don't worry <laughs> yeah it's just it's i'm just like telling the story 20 years after so i only remember the good parts right now <laughs> oh for sure <laughs> yeah and 
so and then I kind of you know we 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 needed some more videos to sell right because we only had like four or five videos that we have that we could sell and uh, I so you remember the American Chopper series from the Discovery Channel? Yep, used to watch that pretty regularly. Yeah, yeah. So you know, I was obviously interested in that as well. So I thought like, hey, I could just like call up Discovery Channel and see if it's possible to get the distribution rights for that as well. And uh, uh, they basically invited me down to Munich to, uh, uh, and they also invited me to like uh, you know. You have the Cannes Film Festival, but then you also have the Documentary Film Festival. So they invited me down there uh, to do negotiations about getting the rights for American Chopper uh, series from the Discovery Channel uh, and sell it in Scandinavia. And we actually snatched the rights for the series right in front of like one of the very big distributors in Norway uh, back then. Uh, which was, you know, uh, fun. But it was because we had, like, this niche car market, so we knew a lot about distributing these kind of uh, of DVDs. So uh, that was kind of, you know, uh, how should I say, like a third pivot. So we went into not only just, like, buying DVDs, but we've also produced them from, like, raw masters uh, and that kind of stuff. So, so it was all about... Uh, videos and, and that stuff for for a while. It was quite a fun time that as well with lots of you know crazy stories from like <laughs> meeting so, so within the documentary space, uh, uh, and especially back then uh, we had like uh, we we also got MythBusters by the way, uh, which was fun. The distribution uh, rights, or did you get yeah, to meet yeah, them yeah. too? No, we didn't get to meet them. It wasn't Discovery that actually owned those rights. But, so we just got them for someone else, uh, like the production company. Okay. But uh, we managed to sell those as well. But uh, this was also kind of in the period where like DVDs were really dying. And suddenly, up to one point, uh, we had a day where like three of the absolutely biggest distributors in, in Norway went bankrupt at the same time. Uh, and uh, we basically just had to shut down our company because, uh, like the the market was basically just uh, gone, like almost overnight, because all of the big distributors had to downright the value of their stockhouses, and that kind of like pulled the plug on the entire DVD market in in Norway uh, and with us with it. Wow! And uh, yeah, and also when. Um, when I started that tuning shop, I also started like a, a automotive car forum in Norway, which uh, grew to be the biggest one in in Norway. Uh, and I actually owned it for like 20 years. I sold it last year, actually. Um, but that was kind of like my my full-time job after I've done the DVD video production thing. And uh, then I got kids and everything, and I thought like, okay, I can't be, I can't be like a founder anymore. I have to have to get like a proper job, uh, and uh, I I went looking for like a proper job, as my mother would say, would tell me. <laughs> that was like back in 20, 2012 or something, and I basically was pulled into uh, uh, a sub, like a small company, was that was owned by the biggest energy company in Norway, uh, 
And uh, I got the role of being, I think you called it like webmaster back then, okay. which, which were like you had, uh, you know, my job was to take care of like their web pages and stuff like that. Because I've been doing a lot of web development and stuff with, you know, the car forum thing that I was running. And this was kind of like my first professional job, uh, which is now, let's say, 10 years ago. Uh, which was kind of interesting. <laughs> and uh, and I got to... I, I worked there for a couple of years and I actually became the CEO after two or three years of that company. Jeez, are you just getting lucky or are you that skilled? <laughs> what are we looking at here? Well, well, I'm. I think I'm... I'm pretty good at doing stuff that I'm not supposed to do. <laughs> I'm not sure. <laughs> I mean, fair enough. <laughs> so, and I think it's also like I usually end up in a lot of weird situations. So, like this company that I was working for had been running with like a negative negative surplus. It's probably a different way to say that, but just basically, yeah. yeah, with a deficit. So we had we we lost or the company lost between. Uh, three three hundred thousand dollars to five hundred thousand dollars a year for ten years of basically botch botched development of different digital products, and uh, uh, suddenly, like the management of the big energy company said, like you need to stop this because uh, it's like you're just losing a bunch of money all the time. Uh, but we were securing a lot of customers for the energy company because what we were doing was that we were actually involved with uh, real estate agents to, uh, you know, we basically gave them free software that they would use in their real estate margin or uh, market. And they would um, give us electricity customers when you were moving, right? Uh, so, uh, I became CEO after we had like this really big uh, cut down in the company and uh, like 80% were fired. Uh, they let the CEO go and uh, I was kind of like the one that reached out my hands and like, hey, yeah, yeah, sure, I can, <laughs> I'll take it. <laughs> and um, I basically focused up, you know, on just uh, developing our own uh, digital products we made a bunch of new products and we managed to turn the company around after like 16 months uh, by yes, putting development in house. And uh, uh, yeah, so like after 16 months, after I became the CEO, we managed to turn it around and it, we delivered like a 160,000 and stuff like that a surplus, which was uh, pretty good for the company because we were had like been losing money for like 10 years. So now so, are like companies like Microsoft uh, knocking on your door saying, hey, come work for us. Uh, you know, you can be our, you, you could work on our board of directors. Is that is that how that works? <laughs> well, uh, not, not, not really. But uh, what happened was that the, uh, the company that owned us uh, which was like this big energy company, they started to notice, like, how were you able to do all this stuff with so little money? And um, um, I got more and more into, like, their innovation department uh, within uh, energy distribution, which is, like, selling 
energy, electricity. And uh, eventually, uh, I did like a project where I were like developing a new energy company. And uh, we had like the mantra was like, how cheap or how small can you make a new energy company? Uh, and uh, the day that we were going to present that uh, to the executive team, which were like a big thing for us, they never showed up. And uh, we were just like let down. And we later figured out the reason. And the reason was that a bigger European energy company had just bought our owner. So a giant Finnish energy company just bought the company. And we never ever get to present our super sleek, trimmed out version of an energy company. Uh, because then everything went into, you know, this strategic nightmare of and you know all these legal issues and stuff. Because like when you have the biggest energy company in Norway being bought by one of the biggest energy companies in Norway, uh, sorry, in Europe, it's kind of a big deal. And uh, uh, but eventually I got uh, picked up by this new company that actually bought us. Uh, this company is called Fortum, and it's a really, really big uh, European energy companies. And uh, they operate around 150 power plants, and 12 of them are in Russia. So they run like nuclear plants for Russia in the Ural Mountains. So this was uh, a special, a special company to work for. And I ended up doing, you know, having several roles there. Because I was like gotten to know like the the person who are able to you know get stuff done for little money, <laughs> uh, and uh, yeah, so that was uh, that was a fun time. I I left my CEO job at the old company. I came into this new company that I've just bought us, and I had some really weird and funny fun experiences there, and uh, so. The, the company that I work for were like, they're, they're so big that, you know, their business are kind of like their, their country's national security matters. Right. Cause like when you bought like fin uh, it's owned by a Finnish company and Finland has their main border with Russia. And uh, we had permission to run nuclear power plants for Russia. And uh, 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 so, you know, it was very, it was an exciting job, and at some point, I were actually uh, an advisor to the executive team of this company. Like we visited like Russian startups and stuff like that, in terms of like if we were to acquire them or, or you know, uh, or to invest in them. Uh, I was, uh, uh, you know, advising their venture capital team, and I ended up finally inheriting their digital product which was similar to the one that i you know got cancelled which was how small can you make an energy company so interesting uh, and we ended up starting a, a new energy company in denmark actually uh, and we did like a corporate startup and uh, that is kind of where i get got entangled with electronics again because uh, 
one of the things that I wanted to do because I ended up being a product uh, uh, product not a product manager but like an executive uh, head of product I think my title was something like that okay and what we what I wanted to do was that in, in Norwegian and Danish and like millions of, of uh, energy uh, metering smart meters uh, you had the possibility to hook up some device and just like read serial data from it. And uh, what I wanted to do was develop our own piece of hardware so we could get real-time data out of the uh, out of the the uh, power meters. Sort of like via like three G or or like a cell network, basically. Um. Uh, just through, uh, just through uh, internet. So okay, yeah. So that was kind of like the uh, yeah one of the main driving ideas for our new company, our new energy company that we made in Denmark. But uh, our owner did really not want to do hardware because they had just shut down uh, like a hundred million euro thing, uh, which they tried to do hardware. And they didn't. They didn't want to start something new with hardware. So uh, me and uh, another person uh, from that team decided to uh, to quit the the big company and just like start our own and start to start to develop this uh, piece of hardware that uh, that we wanted. And uh, that was kind of how I got back into electronics. Did you end up? Developing it and uh, selling it for millions of dollars, so now you can join my Patreon for two dollars a month, or, or not really? I uh, know, not really. <laughs> <laughs> well, I was hopeful for both of us. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So i I got uh, actually it started a bit before that in terms of like getting back into electronics. So the company that I used to work for, uh, which I was the CEO for, we lost a very, very big client, which was like 50% of our business. And we lost that to a competitor and the competitor hired half of my company (laughs) to do data entry for them. So as the CEO, I had like a really big problem and that was like, I need to process 30,000 handwritten piece of paper uh, with half of my staff. And oh, wow. uh, what I did was just like, okay, so, and I obviously couldn't ask for more money for, like, we just couldn't get more money from the company. Uh, I think, like, most of those people were, like, hoping we were going to fail. But uh, what I basically ended up doing, which this probably sounds crazy, but I basically started to do, like, Udemy courses on computer vision and started to learn Python. Uh, and I just... Uh, together with like the one developer that we had full time, we managed to create like a service that could do optical uh, character recognition for just some very very basic Python knowledge. So that was kind of like my introduction to to programming, was to to make this uh, you know uh, customer service or data entry uh, piece of you know of code. So everything was like purely written in Python. Uh, by by me, who has basically only taken Udemy courses, but it worked. Uh, it worked 
enough. So we kind of got our head above the water and I got, I got to learn some programming. And uh, because I then knew Python, I bumped into MicroPython on, uh, on microcontrollers. And that's kind of where I, I got into electronics again. And to me, it was like absolutely mind-blowing that I could code hardware with Python. And I just like remember even it was probably some like some, you know, like a blinky thing or whatever that I tried first. But like when I flashed the first ESP8266 with MicroPython, I just like started to breadboarding. I felt like, oh, I could probably just like make anything with this. So I think like that was how I got into electronics again. Uh, and that ended up being like giving me motivation to try to develop this piece of hardware uh, that would read off uh, power meters. Turns out that uh, our startup or this specific idea of reading um, uh, uh, data from the power meter was actually extremely hard. It wasn't hard because it, you know, uh, it was, uh, the, the reason why it was very hard was that the energy that we could consume to run our device was, I think, like six milliamps of 24 vo uh, volts, right? Okay. And it was like impossible to just like run a microcontroller with Wi-Fi on that. So like the this this, this product became like very complex because like we have to include like a supercapacitor because we really did not want to have an external power supply because if we would add an external power supply, uh, like a certified electrician had to come to your fuse box and you in here in Norway, you probably would need to pay like an electrician, let's say between 500 to $1,000 to do that because it's like everything here is so expensive. <laughs> uh, so we really did not want to do that. So this thing of developing this simple product be, turned out to be very hard. And it turned out that you know, we need to do a lot of prototyping to, to be able to do this. And we did not have a lot of money. So we were very creative in terms of how we were making prototypes. So we like we didn't even um, order, you know, PCBs, something like that from, you know, from the, the cheap Chinese companies, stuff like that. We just like milled all our prototypes on a custom uh, CNC mill that we made. Uh, and... Uh, it, we got like more, more and more interested in like the developing electronics rather than just the, the, the simple product. So I got into like, okay, so these machines that we build, you know, they're pretty interesting. Maybe, you know, we, we should focus more on these machines instead of just like that's where we say, you know, a simple product. And then you know, uh, co uh, COVID hit and 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 all that stuff, and you know, semiconductor crisis, and like it's trying to start a startup in the middle of that nightmare was like extremely hard. Uh, and after a couple of years, uh, we we kind of uh, gave up, and uh, the my my co-founder, 
you know, she, uh, she was in, a, in another place in her life where she kind of like wanted to get a house and, you know, uh, not to do a startup. So we basically uh, decided to shut it down. Well, that's pretty sad. Is that the is that the uh, contrary IO? Is that the one that yeah, just yeah. got shut down? Oh, okay. I yeah. see what's going on. Well, that's unfortunate. But okay, so how about because um, I do see that you have some quite interesting projects on your YouTube channel, and I saw some cool stuff on your Twitter. How about some personal projects then? Can you pick uh, one or two that you're really proud of and talk to us about those? Yeah, definitely. So I've I've done a lot of stuff <laughs> and so what I'm um, I'm basically doing like right now is I'm tr I'm trying to figure out um, a way to be able to just like work publicly with the stuff that I'm interested in and share the work I do and hopefully other people will you know kind of just try to find, follow the mantra to, you know, make things that I like and then find people who are similar to me. Uh, and then instead of selling this to them, I'm just sharing with them for free. And then I've set up the, the possibility to, you know, donate money through Patreon and stuff like that. And um, uh, the very specific thing, something that I worked on for, uh, for quite some time, has been the process of applying solder paste to uh, to boards. So I built several machines in order to do that. And over a very long development phase, uh, I have kind of like tried to simplify and drive down the cost and complex complexity of this entire process to basically ended up with a really small 3D printed vacuum plastic box, uh, which you can see on, on my YouTube channel. And uh, it's just like a different way of doing applying solder paste uh, instead of using, you know, the good old taping it to the table and, and that sort of stuff. And that's like, Probably it's been like a very long uh, continuous process, and uh, I sh and I ended up like sharing a video, like a one minute video, on uh, on Twitter for that, and it got like ten thousand views or something overnight, uh, which was pretty crazy. Let me just explain it for the people who haven't seen the video, but they should definitely yeah. go check it out. But it's basically like um like a three D printed sort of box with like a grate on the very top uh, that you drop your PCB in and then you put uh, your stencil, your, usually it's a, it's a piece of um, stainless steel stencil on top and you connect your vacuum cleaner to the bottom. And then when you uh, turn on your vacuum cleaner, it basically, there's a compliant mechanism inside that pulls the PCB and the, the stencil into like perfectly flat and it holds it there while you can apply your thermal, uh, your, uh, sorry, your uh, uh, solder paste, which is, it's really ingenious idea. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a quite simple idea, but it's, um, I also shared um, a video of like an, a machine I built a year ago or something, which is like the, uh, you know, an open 
Uh, it's, it's based on uh, the open builds aluminium extrusions. And it's basically a copy of how like a professional machine works. Uh, but it's made with the open source extrusions. And uh, that was kind of the first version of the box. But everything has just like been simplified all, all you know, uh, all along. Because I wanted to figure out, because uh, like most people can't have a, a six axis, you know, uh, machine, uh, which is the size of a solder stencil. So let's say that, you know, it's, it's, it, it would cover your entire like normal working bench. Most people can't have that. And then I went to, and also that used framed stencils, which is pretty big. And I wanted to make a machine that could use fr uh, frameless stencils because then you could use uh, solder stencils, which is like 100 by 100 millimeters instead of, you know, 400 by 300 millimeters. And uh, it's a, a foot and a half by a, by a foot for those of you uh, in Libya. Um, yeah, yeah. <laughs> America and one more. I don't remember what the last one is. I love that joke. Anyways, yes. Yeah, and and then I made a, sm a smaller machine, and in order to align the um, stencil onto the the uh, uh, circuit board, uh, the unexpected maker for those who who know him, uh, and because we have kind of been pushing ideas. Uh, back and forth, he was like, "Yeah, what about using like a vacuum bed?" And I was like, "Yeah, sure, like that, that, that you know, that could work." Uh, but he was thinking of like a vacuum bed that you would have on like a CNC, which like a, with a proper vacuum motor. The problem is that uh, you would need to have like a totally enclosed uh, system, unless you have like a very big vacuum motor, which is like really, really expensive. So I was like, "Okay." What about just using a vacuum cleaner? It's like something everyone has, and it has like very high CFM uh, or like you know uh, uh, throughput. So even if your box is not airtight, it's still going to work. And uh, I basically figured out, hey, now that I have this vacuum box, I don't actually need the machine at all. If I could find a way to lift lift the sensor. So I started to experiment with different springs. I 3D printed a ton of springs. I've always just tried to, how should I say, just like go one step at a time. So it's just like, okay, I figure out how to make a 3D printed spring. And then I probably made like 20 springs. And then, okay, let's put it in the box. And then let's make a lift mechanism. And I've been iterating like this for some time. And I basically ended up with what is today, which is... Uh, yeah, a simple box. Everything is 3D printed, and uh, it, it it works. Uh, it works pretty good. Uh, if you are, you know, uh, have been doing and making electronics for a long time, you'll probably get the same results with like the taping down technique. But that thing has like never been a good thing for me, so <laughs> that's why I like this this box instead. I finally got my first. Um... PCB made with a solder stencil and so I did my first um, you know uh, reflow soldering um, with a hot plate uh, last week or the week before and I think the vacuum would have been nice because the thing is for those listening 
when you use the the tape down method, you kind of use your spare PCBs as as shims because they become the they're the right height, right? So it would be nice to to uh, have some sort of the this vacuum solution, right? So that you only need to use the PCB you're soldering onto. So it is it is solving a problem. Yeah, yeah. And and I have like so my overall plan is or what I hope to do is just to you know try to get more people interested in electronics because I think I think that um, electronics is like a you know it's 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 something that the countries go to war over you know when it comes to semiconductors uh, because you can do really powerful stuff with it. And uh, what I would like to be able to do is make, you know, more people able to create electronics. Because you don't necessarily need to know a lot about electronics uh, in order to make them. Because you could basically just be following a recipe. Yep. So something that I find very interesting is to try to decouple the product creator from the manufacturing um, uh, process. So you could, so if you would uh, compare it to something like 3D printing, right? So you have a bunch of people that uh, make, you know, a lot of 3D printable stuff, they share it, and then people just take those digital instructions, uh, put them into their machine in their 3D printer, and they end up having a product. And uh, this is basically the same, uh, at least from the high level, with electronics. So if people had the ability to m- assemble or make electronics closer to home or in their home, uh, you could have a space where you have electronics product creators creating product for, how should I say, like an open uh, manufacturing uh, process which you basically just have at home and it's probably not for everyone but you know uh, everything which turns out to be big usually have to start with some really small enthusiasts and I really think like this is something you know really uh, really exciting and it's really that who, that kind of drives me to to do this stuff as some kind of like yeah, how should I say, like uh, a drive to try to do that? Because I think, I think that if uh, if more people are able to produce stuff, more people are able to you know sell stuff or just keep it for themselves, and the more people are dependent on each other uh, in terms of market mechanisms and, and stuff like that, the you know the more people. Uh, have the ability to 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 make money and earn a living without you know having a, how should I say a normal job and, and stuff like that. So um, that's kind of like the high high level description of what's kind of driving me at the core. So that's kind of like I've tried to follow this kind of plan. Uh, I've actually I've started with uh, I so I made. For our startup, I think I've made like 
over 150 different like, circuit-based products. Uh, but I kind of like went uh, in terms of launching my YouTube channel. I kind of went back to basic and did something really, uh, really basic, and that was to develop a really simple circuit board that will give uh, USB-C uh, to the PlayStation 4 controller. Because uh, you know, as a PCB project, it's 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 a pretty simple project. It costs you know very little money. So what I did was that I created a circuit board which other people could order at, uh, for example, JLCPCB, and they would just like take my Gerber file and they could just like order products from the factory in China. And I made a few videos around how I made the circuit board and uh, I probably made like four or five videos around the PS4 controller and USB-C because I want to try to tap into like a, like a special, you know, uh, uh, a problem or a subject within YouTube, right? And I went to all of the USB-C conversion videos and I like mentioned my projects and my videos in those comments. And that's kind of where I have gotten the most source of traffic uh, from uh, with YouTube. And um, there's like, uh, I have a Discord and I have like, have people there for, you know, uh, some are like very young uh, and they have ordered some of the, uh, or like the PCP that I made. Uh, and that's super, uh, I think that's super cool. Uh, and then you have uh, people who, you know, uh, real, not, not necessarily are into electronics from the start, but they kind of come in through this uh, this this window of this simple circuit board with USB-C for the PlayStation 4 controller. And they start to see the video and it's like, hmm, I think I can also do that. You know, some of them want to, to build the PCB themselves. Some of them obviously think like, hmm, maybe I could sell that like to my friends. And uh, that's basically the most valuable experience I got out of my startup. It was that, you know, I was actually able to make electronics at home or at least assemble it. And uh, other people are probably able to do that as well. But most people are, you know, they don't think that they are able to make electronics, like because they don't know too much about electronics, right? But uh, uh, that's also kind of like why I wanted to have bit of a different angle than most people or YouTubers that does electronics because they usually like do a USB 32 project or stuff like this. But I just like wanted uh, to tap into a source of people who were kind of like new to this and give them the same experience I had when running my startup. Uh, and then basically just like start to drag them through. But like the next thing and I was like okay you can order this board now and you you, you pay you pay like four dollars for the board but if you assemble it yourself you can make it for one dollar and then most people are like uh yeah but there's no way I can uh assemble you know a circuit board and then you know I'm planning to make videos on you know this is how you can assemble and make circuit boards you know with a basic ten dollar hot plate uh, and uh, 
try to just like show people what you actually can do because it's uh it's it's very hard for people to imagine what the next thing is if you are kind of like more than one step ahead right so if you tell people that you know uh, you could manufacture electronics at home and uh, that's just going to change everything <laughs> most people are going to be like yeah yeah that's you know that's not happening like uh you know i i don't have a steady hand i can't you know pick and play stuff with like a uh, with the tweezers and I'm like, yep, you know, that's true, but we could also make a very simple pick and place machine to do this. And then people start to like, Hmm, yeah, that might be true. That might be interesting. And, uh, that's kind of like how I try to guide people through to see what I've seen basically. And, um, uh, yeah, and I like I talked with like several. So this is like obviously something that I learned a lot through the startup, and uh, one of the reasons why also I choose not to go and try and raise money because the most interesting stuff wasn't to try to create like an like a venture capital investment vehicle, but it was to try to share this knowledge of creating electronics at home for a very low cost and not necessarily try to make that into the new like a new the biggest company right or something like that yeah i mean i try to do something similar in my youtube channel like i have a sponsorship with uh, pcb way as a lot of my uh, viewers would know but i go out of my way to make circuit boards that are fun e either they solve a problem or they're fun to build, right? To try to get as much people in as possible. I mean, I've made a discrete uh, motor driver, like an H-Bridge motor driver, because if you're interested in electronics, the odds that you have a couple of transistors, a couple of resistors, and some stuff like that on hand are pretty high. So you could order these boards from wherever you want. I always allow the downloading of the Gerbers, and they can you know, buy this from wherever they want and they probably have the parts at home to build it, which, which I think is the important part, right? You don't, electronics shouldn't be expensive. It should be fun. It should be educational. It doesn't have to be expensive. Yeah, exactly. Let, let me ask you a question. When you uh, make these boards and share them, what kind of responsibility do you feel in terms of like, you know, how it works and, and stuff like that. Do you see it as a product or do you just see it as you sharing some work and the responsibility is on the person who take that file and orders it? Um, I guess I'm not sure what you mean by responsibility. So uh, let's say that uh, the, the board that you made was, you know, creating a lot of EMI or you know it uh, uh you know it it was made uh in a way that it could caught fire or something like that uh, i'm just like trying to come up with a scenario where basically someone uh, would complain about your design if you know what i mean oh i would say yeah i would say you you know in that case i would say it's their responsibility because you kind of get what you pay for. Like I just, I put it together. I've been using it. It didn't catch fire for me. So 
if it caught fire for you, maybe you need to reevaluate how you put it together, for example. Yeah, exactly. And I think like this, this, so this is a quite interesting uh, concept in terms of like when we talk about pro uh, products uh, in the, at least in the West, in the Western world, like products that we buy uh, are, you know, they need to be in a special way. Uh, there is a lot of responsibility on the person who actually sells a product, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, and if you go to China, for example, you know, uh, the, that thing is quite different, like culturally, because, you know, you can buy a lot of stuff on AliExpress that, you know, not necessarily is to the quality of standards that we use in the West. However, um, all of these compliance stuff uh, and the responsibility that we put on the product creator is probably also a very limited in terms of how many products that we are able to create like in the West. So I think that um, just by sharing the work you do, uh, is like something like a new way of actually, you know, giving or, or making products. People probably not think of it like that, but I think it's like, it's, it's, it's super exciting. And, uh, and, uh, yeah. Yeah. And I think, I think there would be a difference too, if I was creating a product with the intention to sell in that case, I would be taking more responsibility on. I would want to make sure it's fairly bulletproof, but you know, you'd still have to follow instructions, obviously. Um, but other than that, if it's like a project of mine and uh, you want to try it out for yourself, then I think the the responsibility does lie on you because, especially since when I publish videos, you can see it working. Like, like it yeah. clearly works, right? Yeah, yeah, <laughs> so, yeah. Yeah, and and that's kind of also been the way I'm thinking about it. So, so I I make a board and the, I'll share the tests that I do with it and like, hey, this is how it works for me. So you can expect it to work the same for you, right? Uh, and uh, because I like uh, if we do things like this, because. Uh, for someone who has done like a hardware startup, most of the hard parts is not creating the product. It's not doing the electronics. It's everything else, right? It's like sales, marketing, distribution. Um, you know, uh, you know, getting your product legal and stuff like that. So, um, just by sharing the stuff you do, you're able to produce a lot of more, you know, more different products than you are if you, if you, if you just want like to sell them uh, professionally. So, uh, and this is kind of like aligning with the thinking that I wanted to just uh, create stuff I think is interesting and then just share it with people. And then people would take the responsibility to, uh, to, to try that. And they should obviously expect the same result unless, you know, they would mess it up. Uh, but just think about how many more products you would be able to get access to if you took more responsibility yourself when uh, you acquire them. So instead of, you know, uh, buying products that are, you know, from produced through like a Western uh, manufacturing standard, 
think about all the products you get access to through AliExpress or through just like ordering copies of uh, Gerber files. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, and I think that's the same thing when I take someone else's projects into my own hands. Like if I if it doesn't work, um, that's my responsibility and. You know, I, I might reach out to the creator and see if they have any ideas, but they, they don't owe me anything. I'm using their work, uh, like they're allowing me to use their work, but I'm basically using their work for free. Mm-hmm. And so if they would say, I'm sorry, I don't have time to answer your questions, that's fair enough because I didn't yep. pay you anything for it. The yeah, exactly. dynamic changes if I, is if I pay, right? If, if, I, if someone buys something off of me, I would feel uh, compelled to offer support. I, yeah. I don't think I don't think anybody. I don't think everybody should uh, assume that they need to support their products, especially if they say this is you know offered without support. But I'm saying me personally, then I would feel compelled, like I should be offering support. Yeah, exactly. And but and that also makes you as a product creator uh, be able to create a lot more products because yeah. you don't have to do the other part. And uh, that's something which I find very interesting, and especially around content creation. So you could also just, you know, uh, consider electronics or making recipes for this, or the digital instructions for creating the circuit board or the pick and place process to be content. Uh, not this, uh, and you could be like a content creator uh, as a product developer, and uh, that's something that I think is going to be uh, yeah, really interesting to see uh, in the future because you know products that are usually developed either as open source products uh, usually just tend to be better and better all the time. And products which are made through a mass manufacturing process are usually not as good because they need to do a lot of stuff in order to mitigate risk, right? So uh, you could be more bold when you just share your product files, uh, and uh, instead, you know, instead of running through the whole mass manufacturing uh, or normal work chain that we have. So I think that's yeah. uh, super interesting, and I think that's something that is going to have to be clarified as we move towards a world that is more open to right to repair is I have zero, and I mean zero issues at all, of a company saying, here's the diagrams, here's the replacement parts, but if you open this tool up or this product up and make your own modifications, we are not responsible for what happens. I am totally fine with that, but I would I would, I would, would much rather that than the current status quo of... You can't buy replacement parts. You can't fix your own stuff, and we're still not responsible. You know what I mean? Yeah, exactly. And, but um, I th- oh, that's also probably uh, like a result of uh, like a hyper-optimized uh, value chain from uh, from uh, you know a marketplace which is dominant by very few companies. Uh, you know that are able to actually do it like this. Yeah, uh, oh, for sure. But it's also a bit special, like, you know, it's it's basically robots that makes these parts, and sometimes it's probably cheaper to just, like, make something new than to just replace a sim- simple thing. 
However, it's really not a good thing that they actively try to shut down people actually wanted to make business out of fixing stuff instead of, uh, you know, instead of just by buying, buying new stuff all the time. Oh, exactly. I agree. Hey, um, we're actually at uh, just over an hour, and I have a question I ask every single one of my guests. Do you mind if I throw you that question? Sure, sure. All right, so the setup is you get a government grant. I guess your government has more money than my government, so this could be true. Um, for you to start the business of your dreams, it does not have to be profitable, but it does have to provide a service or a product. What kind of business do you start? Uh, I think I would just do what I do now. <laughs> Yeah, so you would make like a, you would turn what you do now into like some sort of pro outfit where you actually make money instead of uh, <laughs> instead of making a loss. <laughs> well, I think uh, I'm pretty. So I think that uh, the option for making money will usually turn up where you have problems to fix. Uh, so. Uh, I think that uh, the opportunity for for making money in like the space which I'm trying to do will maybe show up later. There are like some very obvious things, which is you know uh, uh, having deals with PCB way or manufacturing like this, like commissions. But uh, yeah, I think I think I would just like have if 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 it was 10 years ago i was i would probably have just tried to make a, a normal uh company but i i i think i'm more now into trying to create networks instead of corporations and a network could be like a youtube channel or or something like that so yeah i think i would just like to do what i do but on on government funding <laughs> <laughs> so speaking of doing what you do um we're going to have to end it here but i'd like you to tell uh the people listening where to go find you what they should check out and maybe tell them a video they should really look at i think you should uh if you haven't already uh, go check out the vacuum solder stencil box it has such a long name that i keep forgetting what the name is all the time because uh, that's pretty interesting and that's something that i've worked on for for quite some time uh i even made a very clickbaity a thumbnail for that which is not necessarily turning out to work so maybe but you probably know what i mean <laughs> so check me out on on youtube um, I'm also on Twitter and on Instagram, but I, I mainly post long form content or the, not as long as a podcast, but, uh, shorter than should I say like TikTok format on over at YouTube. So go check out my YouTube channel and, uh, just go from there. I also stream a lot on Twitch, which I find to be super cool. So you can also follow me at Twitch. And uh, maybe we can put some some links in the description there for that. Yep. All the links will be in either the show notes if you're listening to the audio version or the description if you're listening on YouTube. Uh, and so you guys, you really need to go uh, check out his stuff. Check out a couple videos. You'll know for sure that this is the, this, this is the, the kind of things you want to see. Then hit that subscribe button. It always helps us. Uh, and so Marius, thank you so much for joining me today, uh, taking time out of your busy schedule to talk with me. No problem. Thanks for uh, letting me on. All right. And you viewers, you better be going on to his uh, 
socials and hitting subscribe and uh, on Twitch, hit, give, a, give them a follow. That makes a big difference for uh, Twitch streamers as well. Thanks for listening and we'll catch you all in the next one.